Prior to you with some conference announcements, before we get into this week's episode, Scala Wave is coming up on the 25th and 26th of November in Gdansk, Poland, with keynote speaker Roland Kuhn, one day of workshops, and three presentation packages, Scala Wave is created to build a network of Scala enthusiasts and experts in the area of the Baltic Sea region and beyond. Visit www.scalawave.io to find out more and to sign up for the newsletter for updates. Destination Code, a new unconference starting in Utah, is having its inaugural event this December. The unconference brings energetic and seasoned mentors to the mountain village of Summit Powder Mountain for sessions and workshops worked in the day between ski sessions, farm-to-table meals, and an inspiring getaway. Visit www.destination.codes to find out more. The 2016 Closure Cons will be taking place in Austin, Texas on December 1st to the 3rd. Closure Cons is the original conference for Closure and its community. Founded in 2010, the conference is the premier place for developers from all around the world to gather and learn about what is happening with the language, in the community, and within organizations using Clojure. Visit 2016.closure-cons.org for more information and to register. Lambda Days will be taking place again on the 9th and 10th of February in 2017. Lambda Days is a -a one-of-a-kind experience in the functional world. The never-failing explosion of enthusiasm and talent is what gets them motivated to explore this amazing community and all of its potential. To Lambda Days, Scala, Erlang, Haskell, Elixir, F-Sharp, Lips, Clojure, and many other merging technologies are more than just languages. They are new perspectives on how to understand and tackle challenges of everyday work. The call for talks is open until January 1st of 2017, and make sure to keep an eye out on their site for when registration opens. Visit www.lambdadays.org to submit your talk and to keep updated as information becomes available. And if you would like a discount code, email contact at functionalgeekery.com or DM at FNGeekery on Twitter for a code for 15% off the ticket price. Closure D has been announced it will be taking place in Berlin, Germany on February 25th of 2017. Early bird tickets are currently available. For more information and to register, visit www.closurede.de. The day before Closure D, on the 24th of February in Berlin, Germany, BobConf will be taking place. Bob has a strong focus on functional programming, and Bob is the forum for developers, architects, and builders to explore technologies beyond the mainstream and to discover the best tools available today for building software. With a keynote by John Hughes, their goal is for all participants to leave the conference with new ideas to improve development back at the range. For more information about the conference, visit BobConf, that's B-O-B-K-O-N-F, dot D-E. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Gabriel Gonzalez. Gabriel, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm a Haskell programmer, and I'm also a big evangelist of Haskell. I love to blog about it. I love to write libraries in Haskell, and I also just love to use it at my job. And so I try to convince others to use it because I think it is a fantastic language. And I came across you in a number of ways. One was an early recommendation without knowing that it was you was had some people say, get Tecmo 
on Reddit to come talk about Haskell, please. Then found you and listened to you on Haskellcast. Seeing some of your blog posts just creep up in my browsing of stuff around functional programming and doing some cursory views of Haskell to see what's out there. So you've been on the radar for a while. We tried to get you an episode earlier, and we had one scheduled, but you had a baby, so congratulations on that. Thank you. And so let's dig into some of your background. How did you get into software first, and then what was that exposure and path looking like that brought you into functional programming and or Haskell, whichever one came first? So I think programming specifically, I began at quite a young age. So I was introduced to basic, I guess, around 10. And I had done taken programming classes in high school and in college too. But I never really took programming seriously as a career until like late into my PhD. Because my PhD was actually not in computer science. It was actually a bioinformatics related PhD. But at that time, I was losing interest in doing scientific programming, and I was more interested in just doing pure programming. And that's sort of what got me into software engineering in general. For Haskell specifically, actually, my first exposure to Haskell was on Reddit. So like you mentioned, I have an account on Reddit named Tecmo. And there was a poll at the time for what the logo for the Haskell community should be. And at the time, I think the top two contenders for the logo were what is currently the official logo, and then one which was being upvoted heavily by Reddit, which was essentially like some narwhal making fun of the Haskell community. And I voted for the narwhal because for me at the time, the Haskell community was sort of like a joke. I didn't really take the language seriously at the time. But eventually over time, it sort of grew on me. I had gotten exposure to it several times. I kept hearing people talk about it over and over and over again. So I thought, okay, I'll take some time to learn it and see what's all the hype about and actually, like, it was sort of a miss the first four times that I tried to learn the language. So I had several false starts before I finally, like, really got into the language and finally was convinced that, oh, hey, this is something really worth learning. And I think for me, the thing that really convinced me about the benefits of the language was in the middle of my PhD, I did a lot of scientific programming. And if you've ever done a PhD with, I don't know, maybe not all professors are alike, but I know my advisor, he always kept changing his mind about what he wanted to work on because advisors have lots of ideas, more ideas than they have graduate students to deal with. So he's always giving you new project ideas and you want to be able to like quickly validate or reject those ideas as fast as possible so you can move on to the next project if that one turns out to be a dud. And I find that like in other programming languages, it was just really difficult to move on beyond your very first prototype of a project. So you write something out, and then once the code grows beyond a certain size, it essentially becomes unwieldy. And you either have to commit to that as a project or just scrap it and then rewrite it from scratch. And I find with Haskell specifically, it was much easier to just change course really late into the project. And that was very beneficial for me. So I could just try out lots of new ideas really quickly before I finally settled on what I actually wanted to do. And I think that was for me, it was when Haskell began to stick as a language. And also another thing that really sold me on Haskell was just that as a scientific programmer, you have to do lots and lots of scripting. I mean, obviously, most programmers have to do a lot of scripting anyway, but scientific programming is like 90% glue and shell scripts and bash scripts. And after a while, you get really sick of all these bash scripts that you end up writing. And I actually started using Haskell as a scripting language, as an alternative to bash scripting. And that also really convinced me about the benefit because it eliminated a lot of errors that I would commonly run into when scripting. So that was another reason that got me excited about the Haskell community and started contributing to it. So you're getting exposed a little bit on Reddit. 
but you've also taken four attempts on it. Was the first four attempts and what brought that onto your radar Reddit, or was there just something else around being in PhD and graduate school where other people were talking about Haskell? Or what was the first thing that got you to try it for the very, very first time? It was entirely Reddit. So like nobody in my research lab knew anything about Haskell. So it was definitely not through my PhD. It was entirely through blog posts on Reddit that were advertising the language and also in the comments section in the programming Reddit, lots of people talking about it, people showing, oh, hey, this really complicated problem is just a two-liner in Haskell. And then you think, oh, wow, this is really neat. You know, Maybe there's something to this Haskell language. And that's what sort of got me to try it a few times. And then that period of time, if you tried it four times or five times before it finally stuck, over what period of time? Was that a couple of years coming back and forth between attempts or was that six months or just a couple of months and saying, okay, well, I need to get back in? I think it was on the order of years. So maybe like three or four years, I think. But basically when I was experimenting with the language, I began experimenting late in college. So I'd be like the last couple of years of college is when I first, first started getting on my radar. And then I only actually fully adopted it three-fourths of the way into my PhD. So that was like, I don't know, three, I guess, three years after that. So yeah, I think four or five years. And do you remember what some of those stumbling blocks were when you were failing on your attempts in the first few rounds? Was it the types? Was it the functional aspect of it compared to some of the other languages you had been doing? Or was it some of the other advanced mathematical concepts? Or was it just community and getting Haskell up and going and being able to find a use case for it? I think most of it was just that I couldn't figure out what I would do with it, right? There wasn't really a compelling use case for me to actually use it. I was like, okay, this is cool. I can write some really concise and clever functions in Haskell, but like, what am I going to actually do now? You know, I needed an actual compelling use case for language to actually, like I needed a project in order to motivate my use for it. And one of the reasons I wonder is, you put a post out that was starting about getting started with Haskell and we'll circle back around to that. So I was just trying to figure out and place some of what you had done. So you started early, you started with basic and you didn't actually go for a CS degree. You went bioinformatics, but you were playing around with programming languages a bit. So what were some of the other languages that you were exposed to before Haskell, especially since if you're looking around at a programming subreddit, you've still got an interest in it. So what were some of the languages that you'd been exposed to and playing with before that kind of informed your choice when you came to Haskell and said, oh, this is different. I like this because of... So my exposure before that, a lot of C, a lot of Java, Bash, MATLAB. Those were probably the languages I was most exposed to before Haskell. I think in scientific programming, oh, sorry, Python too. So yeah, scientific programming is a lot of Python, Perl, MATLAB. Those are the big ones. And then for high-performance scientific programming, you know, C++ and Fortran. But that's more like in numerical programming as opposed to just bioinformatics-related stuff. And so you're doing some of this stuff, and then you see Haskell, and you're comparing what it takes to do something in Python or Java or C or C++, and then seeing the expressive power that you can get in Haskell by condensing that into a few lines of code to do the same thing? Yeah, I actually think the thing that was really compelling for me coming from that background was how nice the data structures were in Haskell, specifically the Haskell's purely functional data structures. I found it was just way easier to use them compared to data structures in other languages. It was just more concise, 
less mutation, and they were also really fast too. So it was just a nice mix of speed and conciseness and just ease of use. It was just and also very easy to refactor because Haskell's interfaces are very well chosen, I find. And so a lot of code that you write for one interface can easily be ported to another collections interface. Like obviously a lot of languages have collections APIs, but I think Haskell's collections APIs is a cut above the other ones in my opinion. And so you start finding it for some of the scripting to prove out these concepts. And I've heard other people talk about, and I believe Simon Payton Jones just mentioned it, was that the difference between academia and industry is that you might have a lot of these things where you just write it once and then you're done with it and you don't keep evolving the program as much as you would do in industry because now you've written it, you've shown your proof of concept or you've gotten your basic idea to work that says, here's my proof that this is possible and one way you would do it. And you alluded to the opposite where it was just more of the churn of taking an idea and either having to throw it away and scrap it or continually refine it as the professor was coming back and saying, what about this? What about this? So was that one of the other driving factors of the Haskell then is the refactorability that people sell Haskell on because the type system is so strong, you know exactly those parts of the software that is impacted to the parts that need to change to enhance and evolve the code base as you find new and evolving requirements? Yeah. Haskell is really refactor friendly. And like you mentioned, that's great for long-term maintenance, mature projects inside a company, legacy projects. That's the obvious benefit of refactor friendly language. And Haskell is extremely refactor friendly. And I want to like clarify that refactor means a different thing to different people. So some people, when they think refactor friendly, they mean it's easy to do like search and replace or AST transformations very easily. Whereas when a Haskell programmer talks about refactor friendly, they mean something much more invasive than just renaming methods or adding arguments to existing methods. They mean like, I'm just going to like scrap half my project and then just rebuild it from the ground up. That's what they mean by refactor friendly. And so Haskell really encourages you to not grow attached to code. And so you're much more likely to change it because the harder it is to write code and the harder it is to change it, the less likely you are to throw away your code. In Haskell, you're very unattached to your code. So it's very easy to prototype and change directions. I've had projects where like, you know, 10,000 lines into the project, I decide like this is totally the wrong direction and I'm just going to, you know, scrap 5,000 lines of code and redo it. And then, you know, after I perform this huge invasive refactor of my project, then I compile it and it works or mostly works, which is something that I don't think I can't really say for any other language. So this isn't refactoring in, I guess, the defined sense that came out of the OO world where you're moving stuff around and you're changing the interior structure. Well, it is in one sense where you're changing the interior of the structure without changing the observable behavior of the software. So you're meeting refactoring in that sense, but this is almost if you've ever had to do maintenance on a house kind of stuff, this is not doing a small enhancement or replacing a couple of switches or doing some painting. This is a full refurbishment yeah. where you're gutting something and putting a whole new infrastructure up because you may have only the support beams and everything else is being taken out and replaced. If you're getting an office building for a new location or the like where this isn't, we've got this function. It's looking a little convoluted. We have a whole bunch of let stuff. Let's pull those out into some helper functions that can be reusable. This is, I like the idea. The types are right, but the implementation is just a mess. So let's just start right. over from scratch. Yeah, I guess it'd be more accurate to call it re-architecting the application. That would be a, probably a better word for it. 
And you find you do that a lot with Haskell because it affords you that. And the first pass is essentially figuring out the types. And then you just say, okay, now that I know what I need, I'm just going to rewrite it. Or what is the process that leads Haskellers to think in that way? Aside from the fact that it provides you the ability to do that, or is that just it provides you the ability to do it so it becomes a safe and the easier route just to do the rewrite from scratch versus do the small evolution. This is a really good topic because I think it strikes a lot to why a lot of people have difficulty learning Haskell and that a lot of people, when they're learning the language, they spend a lot of time reading and not actually coding. And the reason why is sort of like they come from languages where mistakes are expensive in the initial design process. So like if, if you ever come from Ruby or Python or JavaScript background, they do a lot of big design up front because that's the only time when you really have the option of changing things. And then once you commit to that, it's really hard to change directions after that. And then they bring that philosophy with them when learning Haskell. So they think, say, you know, I don't really know what I'm doing. This code sort of feels messy. And I want to read some more before I try to start coding some more. And I find that's sort of the wrong attitude to bring to Haskell. I find that people who learn Haskell the quickest are the ones who are most willing to... Oh, sorry. I apologize. My daughter's in the background crying, but... People who are willing to make mistakes and write messy code in Haskell are the ones who learn it the most quickly, mainly because in Haskell, if you try to reach perfect code in Haskell, you'll never reach it. Haskell has almost like an unlimited ceiling for abstraction. So it's sort of like almost not even worth doing. Instead, I find the best way to write Haskell is just to turn out some ugly code and then just iteratively just keep refining it and improving it. And that's not only will that is that the best way to write Haskell, but it's also the best way to learn Haskell. So I think it's the great approach both for beginners and experts alike. Just put some code out there and just keep improving it because it's always easy to change direction and change your mind later. And what does the improvement look like in your mind? Is that the structure? Is that because you mentioned the you can always go to a higher level of abstraction? Is it just finding that inherent duplication and raising the abstraction level in the appropriate because you're guided by the types and knowing that I can actually generalize this to a more general type? Or as you start evolving and rewriting this and refining your Haskell experience, what does that look like for someone who hasn't been in that world? So another thing I like about Haskell is that you sort of know when you're on the right track because things start to snap into previously existing well-designed interfaces. I mentioned before that Haskell has a nice collections interface, and actually it's not really a collections interface. A lot of Haskell's interfaces are actually inspired from mathematics specifically the branches of category theory and abstract algebra. And so we have a lot of interfaces which are named after abstractions from those fields. And you've probably heard of them. You've at least probably heard of Monad, right? That's one of them. And then there's functor, there's category, there's monoid, for example. And when something fits and clicks into one of those abstractions, that's how you know you're on the right path and that your design is trying to solidify into something that's nice and pleasant and easy to use. So usually I'll just turn out something ugly and then see, like, is what I'm writing fitting into one of these existing mathematical abstractions? And usually, whenever it doesn't exactly match the mathematical abstraction, that's almost always a bug of some sort. And every time this has happened, where I try to make my software fit the math, it almost invariably improved the software, fixed latent bugs that I was not aware of. And so I find that these mathematical interfaces are good guiding principles for how to improve software. So it's the driving towards more composable functions. If I'm understanding that statement based off the way I've started to understand what Haskell drives you to, what the category theory tries to drive you to, 
and the fact that you've got monads, which are your side affecting stuff, and you draw that hard line between here's stuff that's the completely pure that you might not be thinking about having effects if you're in a less strict language versus here's the stuff that is definitely effectful and how do I split those out and make sure that never the two shall meet? There are two separate questions there. So one is like, is this sort of about composable functions? And I'd say it is about composability, but not necessarily about functions. And one of the cool things you'll learn as you learn Haskell is that a lot more than functions are just composable. And out of those interfaces I mentioned, the category interface is what I consider to be one of the more fundamental interfaces because it's an interface essentially for composable things, for a very general notion of a composable thing. And functions are just a special case of that interface where functions are obviously composable. But you can compose other things, like you can compose coroutine pipelines, you can compose lenses, you can compose effectful transformations. You can compose event handlers. You can compose database transactions. Those are all things that are composable through this sufficiently general lens. And the second part of the question was, how do side effects in Haskell's monads sort of fit into this? And that was actually one thing that I found really cool about Haskell, is that a lot of functional languages before Haskell, they had a really nice story for the pure stuff. And they sort of like had a hacky approach to how to deal with side effects. And then Haskell took a very principled stand for how to deal with side effects to make it so that it never cheated. It didn't rely on evaluation order for side effects. That was actually something that turned me off a lot from languages was that I felt that, please remember that I came from a background where even before C, right, there's stuff like basic, right? There's a separation between subroutines and functions, right? Separation between side effects and evaluation order. Most languages conflate the two. Pretty much every mainstream language conflates evaluation order with side effect order, but Haskell doesn't. And Haskell actually separates those two notions. And besides, and that separation is really useful for reasoning about code because the evaluation order just becomes sort of an implementation detail. In fact, a lot of people, when they're learning Haskell, I find that they actually spend too much time trying to think about evaluation order in Haskell when it's sort of missing the point of the language is that in Haskell, with some caveats, you don't really need to understand evaluation order to understand Haskell code. You do need to understand side effect order, but that is independent of evaluation order. And that separation of the two is a very important and key feature of the language that I wish more other languages would replicate. And as you mentioned, though, this does connect to the notion of composability in the sense that Haskell formulates side effects in terms of monads, and monads are a notion of something that is composable. And so the Haskell does like stay consistent with its composable abstractions by taking a principled stand and specifying side effects in terms of monads. Can you elaborate a little bit more about the difference between the side effectful and needing the sequencing of those side effects versus the just inherent ordering and sequencing of the functions in general and how that becomes different once you've gotten some time in Haskell for Anybody out there who's maybe done some other ML languages or functional languages that haven't been as strict as Haskell, which drives you to recognize the difference? I think probably the simplest way to answer this question would be to explain why it's important to decouple the two in the first place. So the reason you want to separate evaluation order from side effect order is that you want to preserve what's known as equational reasoning in Haskell. So equational reasoning means that the way you interpret or understand a program is purely by substitution, substituting equal things for other equal things. And 
that substitution can change the evaluation order. So if you want to preserve equational reasoning, you need to design the language such that evaluation order has no impact on the language. It needs to be an invisible implementation detail. If evaluation order matters, then equational reasoning just stops working. And that's actually the reason why side effects are easier to reason about in Haskell is precisely because they are decoupled from evaluation order. So you can use equational reasoning to reason about side effects in Haskell, something you cannot do in other languages as easily. You could do it using some more fancier theory if you really wanted to. But I find that just simple substitution of equals for equals is something that any programmer can do. In fact, it's so easy to do that I like to think of Haskell sort of as a gateway drug to reasoning about programs informally, and then in turn, reasoning about programs formally. Something that's new to a lot of programmers, and it's a very valid reason to learn Haskell just for that. So going back to your question, I think it's important to ignore evaluation order. So you start to develop an intuition for equational reasoning. And also just makes it easier to learn Haskell, right? If you just say like, because let's face it, right? Evaluation order is kind of difficult to reason about in Haskell, especially due to laziness. In fact, like at work, you know, we deal with space league bugs all the time and it's often very difficult to track and hunt them down precisely for that reason. And so I mentioned there are some caveats, like obviously for performance reasons, you do need to reason about evaluation order in Haskell. But just for understanding the basic semantics of your program, you don't need to think about it. And you should actually strive not to think about it when designing APIs and designing things that are easy to reason about. And I think a lot of that comes in. And the reason I was hoping for clarification is if you're coming from an imperative side, that ordering is the way you think about it. Do A, do B, do C. Yep. There is some inherent composition there. So if I say X equals the call of A, Y equals the call of B, and then I do C, which depends on X and Y, there is some implicit ordering just because I need the X and Y from A and B done to get C done. But I think generally, because I've at least outlined it in my program, it seems just due to history and especially coming from things like basic where it's line 10, line 20, line 30, that I could theoretically swap out 10 and 20, but I don't think about it just because it's there. And so that's why I was wondering what some of those things are that help trigger breaking that mindset once you start getting into Haskell that says, I know that C depends on A and B, but A and B are can be substituted at any point and maybe even later in C if I just pass in the functions instead of the evaluation result of A and B into C. So... I love this question because it's a very compelling argument for learning functional programming in general. I highly recommend anybody who's interested in functional programming or understanding why it matters. There was a paper written a long time ago called The Next 700 Programming Languages, and it was probably the most compelling explanation of why we should adopt functional programming in the first place. And there are several things you can actually take from that paper, but the one thing that really stuck out with me is that Functional programming changes basically the structure of your programming. In an imperative language, your program is basically a sequence of statements. It's linear, right? Do A, do B, do C, then do D. And the way things communicate is by mutating state, essentially. So in this paper, he basically introduced the idea that instead of sequencing more statements, he said we should instead have what he called larger right-hand sides, essentially. So you need to just build up a larger and larger expression Instead of like just combining more and more statements and then using mutation as the glue between them. 
And the reason he advocated this is because expressions are more flexible about how you can structure things as opposed to statements. A linear sequence of statements can only be that, like a line, right? There's no guarantee about, you can't necessarily swap any two instructions in a linear sequence of statements. And there's only so many program architectures that fit into a line of instructions. But once you start moving your programming architecture onto the right-hand side of the equation, the expression, there's much more rich ways that you can structure things. You can now have trees, you can have branching structures. And then once you have that, you can start to consider more interesting programming architectures, more interesting ways of combining things. The idea of like all these mathematical interfaces, for example, are all tree-like structures. And so I think it's really important to stop thinking in terms of linear statements and more in terms of expression trees when trying to make this transition from imperative programming to functional programming, if only because it lets you think new thoughts that you had never thought before when you constrained it to just linear programs. And I don't know that I've made it all the way there, but I have noticed that for me personally, realizing those functions and just say, well, what if I just nested this call inside this and taking use of higher order functions does help me think a little bit more and or start missing expressions over statements in some of the languages where not everything is an expression and in a statement is an if statement versus an expression. Mm -hmm. And so on this of getting past that hurdle, what other hurdles have you found? Because I know you did a getting started with Haskell. Is it a lot of that a mindset? Is it tooling? What are some of those things that you would advise people in getting started with Haskell and making that approach? Because if you failed four times or it took you the fourth attempt and it took you to actually start using it for your shell scripting, which we'll talk about a little bit later on as well, and just getting it in and doing it and doing it and doing it. What are some of those other stumbling blocks for people that you've noticed when you actually start writing up and helping people on the internet and being a Haskell evangelist to making sure that they pass that attempt at learning Haskell more quickly than having the repeat failures, which sounds very common amongst people I've talked to about their attempt to learn Haskell. I find the most important thing is, and this is not just for Haskell or programming, for anything, is just cultivating motivation, right? If you don't have motivation, you're not going to get it done no matter how much you try. I mean, maybe you could if you're like really disciplined and you have a lot of willpower, but it's not going to stick. So I find the most important thing, whenever somebody asks me, so for to help mentor them in Haskell or give them advice how to get started, the very first thing I ask them is like, what do you want to use it for, right? Pick a compelling project that you really enjoy working on and use that to motivate your work. Don't learn Haskell for the sake of learning. I mean, you should learn Haskell for the sake of learning Haskell, but that's not what's going to take you across the finish line, right? It's going to be that really fun project that you love working on that's going to take you across the finish line. That's going to get you through those really hard and tough segments. And I find that there's lots of different ways that you can cultivate motivation. Like, obviously, fun projects are one way to do it. Socializing with other people, like going to meetups, going on social media, like Reddit. Reddit was where a lot of where I cultivated my motivation for getting over those tough barriers. So, like, hanging out on the Haskell subreddit and just chatting with those people about Haskell helped get me through a lot of tough blocks, for example. So I feel like motivation is really the key. And if you solve that, everything else will take care of itself. But to give like more concrete, specific advice, assuming you have motivation, then I would say, again, write lots of code, right? There is no substitute for just writing as much code as possible. Okay, you only learn from mistakes, not from your successes. And then, yeah, like literally just like write code. That's like, I think is really important. You can read a lot and you should read to expand your mind, but you should really 
do stuff too. You should write code and just put it out there. Even if it's the ugliest code in the world, like that's the best code to learn from. And aside from just someone figuring out stuff they want to write with Haskell and finding that project that would get them excited and get them motivated just to work on and find that pet project or that breakable toy or whatever. Aside from that stumbling block of starting to write Haskell, what is some of the stuff that might get someone started quicker? And are there any certain topics that you've noticed for people coming in from other languages that become the starting blocks that people should be wary, be warned of? So let's see, there are several. So things have changed recently. So the stumbling blocks when I first started are different from the stumbling blocks right now. I feel the biggest stumbling blocks at the moment are probably IDE editor support, especially for a lot of people coming from, for example, a Java background where they sort of have a very high standard for what they expect from their IDE. Same thing for C Sharp or the .NET ecosystem. Learning materials have gotten a lot better. I would like to take this time to plug the Haskell Programming from First Principles book. It's a fantastic book for people just starting to learn Haskell. And it's geared towards people who have no programming experience whatsoever. I really wish I had that book at the time that I was learning. And before that book, I really considered the Haskell's um, educational resources to be pretty terrible. Now that book exists. And also there are several other books that have come out in the same time frame too. So I think at this point, Haskell's educational resources are pretty mature at this point. But I feel like tooling in general is something that would greatly improve and is a common stumbling block for new users. Also, yeah, I think tooling is like the number one thing right now that I think holds a lot of the ecosystem back. And also just general, the volatility of the language. Like as many people know, Haskell is a research language, which means that Simon Payne Jones almost has an obligation to let people experiment with their new language features in the compiler itself. Like that was actually sort of how Haskell originated, which was that it was supposed to be an experiment ground for people to test out language features. Because at the time, you know, anytime somebody wanted to talk about their new language feature for their programming language theory paper. You know, they basically needed to introduce some an entire programming language as the context for their one feature that they wanted to present. So they decided to avoid this overhead of people always having to reinvent a language context for their new language feature. They said, let's just agree on a standard language that we can all share and use as the base language for introducing new programming language features. And that was Haskell. And then we'll use that for testing new things. And so that means that Haskell sort of has an obligation to the research community to accept and test their language design proposals. So that's why Haskell has tons of language extensions, some of which would essentially become staples of the community. But they also cause a lot of language volatility. They increase the overhead of learning the language. And it also makes it more difficult to write tooling for the language because you have to handle all of these extensions if you want to write really comprehensive tooling. And I feel like that's also another really big barrier to learning the language as well. Also just means that everyone has their own subset of Haskell that they programming program to. Very much like C++, right? Every team has their own subset of C++ that they use. Same thing with Haskell. Every team has their own subset of Haskell that they use. Another common summing block that I hear a lot of complaints about is Haskell's string ecosystem. Because Haskell has, you know, strings and text and lazy text and by strings and lazy by strings. I think there's a new library coming out called Foundation, which provides its own string type in the hopes of unifying a lot of these various string types. And just the converting between all those string types is a big pain in the butt, to be quite frank. And I wish it were easier, or I wish they would at least reduce the number of types, right? You can obviously make a case for having, you know, separate types for text and byte string, right? But there's really no really compelling case for keeping around string. And like, why should we have both lazy and strict text or lazy and strict byte string? That's just something that a lot of people don't really care about. 
a lot of people programming in Python and they don't care about laziness at all, right? They're totally fine just materializing the entire file as one big string. They don't give a second thought to it. And I feel a lot of people would be fine with a compromise like that. So just lots of small little design choices that you have to make all the time in your project just really tax new programmers until they get the hang of what design choices they make. That's another, I think, hurdle for new programmers in Haskell. And the reason I ask is not that it will remove it, but it can help motivate you that says this is a common stumbling block. Be warned that people will stumble there and don't get frustrated because we at least know this versus this is incomplete on the tooling and we could have a better story there. This is not you. This is just the community in general. And I found that just at least knowing that stuff can help lessen the need for some of that motivation because you think, oh my God, I'm just not getting this. And just realizing that it's not just you kind of thing. Yeah. One fantastic guide for this purpose is Stephen Deal's What I Wish I Knew When I Was Learning Haskell Guide. If you just search for that phrase, you'll find it. It basically has what you just described. Basically, it it goes through and says, like, here are the things that, you know, the Warsaw language that I really wish someone had told me, like, this is okay. This is how we work around it. Things like that. It's a fantastic guide for that sort of thing. And I highly recommend it for somebody learning the language. And then one of the other projects you're involved with is pipes. So can you give a rundown of pipes and what that means? And with the perspective of people who may not be using Haskell, what kind of stuff pipes is? Because I've heard a lot about it as an outsider, but I still don't quite get what it is. So can you give a rundown of what pipes is for those who might not be familiar with it or might not even understand the high-level abstraction that it's trying to solve? So Pipes is fundamentally a coroutine library. Keep in mind that Haskell has very few built-in language features, right? So for example, things like state. Okay, like Haskell does have built-in support for exceptions, right? But in theory, you could actually implement exceptions in a language too if you really wanted to. Haskell has no built-in generators or more generally coroutines. So around the time that Pipes came out, there were lots of libraries emerging to fill that gap. It would basically say, we need generators, we need coroutines, we need a library to fill that gap in the language. And Pipes was one of those libraries. And I think probably most of the reason for the hype around Pipes is just because Pipes provides a coroutine API, which is strongly inspired by category theory and mathematical interfaces. So a lot of the Pipes operators are essentially composition operators for some general category. And so that has several nice properties. One is that in pipes, there are actually very few abstractions. There's really only one central type, which wears many hats, right? You can use the same type to implement, you know, generators, what Haskell community calls iterates. They're not really used that much outside the Haskell community or pipelines or bidirectional resumable generators. A lot of coroutine abstractions are just special cases of this one unifying type. And this type has lots of different ways you can connect it. And so this actually goes back to the topic of composability, right? And a lot of people who hear about functional programming languages, they ask, what is composability and why does it matter? And for me, what's nice about composability is that the heart of composability is that if you start with two things and you combine them together, you get back something of the same type. And the reason that's important is that you want the type to stay the same so that your program doesn't get more complex. I've dealt with a lot of programming architectures, especially in the Java ecosystem, that are extremely complex because the only way you can connect things is to make more complex things. And so as your program architecture scales out, it also grows taller and more complex. And in a composable abstraction is one that doesn't get more complex the more you scale it out. So the more things you connect, 
the more things stay the same. And pipes is one of those abstractions, right? So you can have this abstraction, which unifies a lot of different coroutine abstractions. But the more you connect things, the more things stay the same, right? The type never gets more complex. You always end up back where you started. And so it does a lot to reduce the complexity of your programming when you stick to composable idioms. And pipes pioneered a lot of composable idioms, which were reused by a lot of other coroutine libraries in the Haskell ecosystem. And so that was, I think, most of the reason why people advertise the library a lot. And then in describing coroutines, you mentioned generators, iterables. Can you give an overview of what a coroutine is for people who may be familiar with the concept, but just have never put the word in or understand some of these specifics of coroutines for anybody who's lost in when you're talking about all these coroutines? Yes. So if you're familiar with threading, when most people say threading, they think preemptive threading, meaning that if some thread is running, any other thread can come in and basically displace it and become the new thing being executed. And then there's an alternative to preemptive threading, which is essentially cooperative threading, where different things executing will cooperatively hand off control to each other. And coroutines are basically one form of cooperative threading, in a sense that every coroutine explicitly hands off control to another coroutine. So for example, in the pipes library, there are two primitives called yield and await, right? So if you call yield, you're basically saying, suspend myself, and I'm going to yield some value to some other coroutine, which will then take that value and then resume execution. And you can also await for a value. So you basically say, I'm going to suspend myself until some other coroutine provides me with a value. And the motivating use case for coroutine is if you want to decompose your program into reusable parts. So the reason we use the terms yield and await is because pipes have things that are called producers, right? So something that knows how to generate data, and then consumers will await things, right? So consumer is something that just receives data and then does something with the data. And so the original paper which introduced coroutine basically says this is a way to basically have separate usable parts where you still want to interleave code between them. So you want something that is constantly yielding data one fragment at a time. You want that to be a reusable component. You have something else that's constantly consuming data one datum at a time. You want that to be a reusable component so that you can mix and match them, right? So you want to be able to glue one producer to another consumer or maybe glue it to a separate consumer. So you want to have a library of different producers. So let's say you have M producers and you have N consumers. And assuming that they all agree on the same type, then there's like M times N ways that you can connect those together to generate useful programs. Another good example of this is like Unix pipelines, right? Except that Unix pipelines are actually not cooperative threading, right? They're fully concurrent, right? But it's basically the same idea, right? Unix pipelines, you have a bunch of small components that do one thing and do it well, and then you connect them together into a fully formed program. And if each program just does one thing, then you don't have to have a, a combinatorial explosion if you can just like mix and match different components together. So I think it was just like the idea of decoupling producers, pipelines, and consumers from each other so that you can mix and match them is the key motivating feature of coroutines. And I think I've seen some other stuff, and I wasn't sure if that is playing along with the lazy aspect of Haskell as well, where you want to generate an infinite sequence of numbers. Because I know some other languages will try and do yield and await kind of things and I only produce the next thing in the sequence when it's on demand, and that's their way of attempting to be lazy. I didn't know if that was something inherently fitting with Haskell's laziness as well. Actually, pipes could be implemented entirely in a strict language. It doesn't take advantage of, I mean, 
it does take a little bit advantage of Haskell's runtime, but not in a really fundamental way. You can implement pipes in Scala or ML or really any, any other language that you wanted to. Actually, the number one feature that Haskell provides is just the fact that it does tail recursion well, right? That's really the only thing that makes pipes easy to implement in Haskell. Laziness is not at all a key feature of Haskell for implementing pipes. So, I mean, in a sense, Haskell's laziness is one way you could sort of do generators in the pure fragment of Haskell, but it doesn't scale well to code that has side effects. So side effects and Haskell's natural laziness don't mix that well. And that was actually one of the stronger motivations for a lot of these coroutine libraries like Pipes to come out was to fill that gap where people needed something like laziness, but they could also handle side effects at the same time in a way that was like elegant in principle. Okay. And when I was saying lazy, some of the laziness is I've noticed it's been used in things like .NET with C-sharp or even some of the JavaScript stuff with wanting to await stuff as they look at the future of JavaScript where it's I want to do this, but I want to be lazy about it. So they are able to take advantage of pipes or something similar of coroutines, I guess, because that language doesn't inherently have the laziness of Haskell. Whether it's I want to await a database and be lazy about that fetch until I need it or the like. Yeah, so when people talk about laziness, it can mean several things. So one is that you know evaluation happens only at the very last minute. That's what most Haskell programmers mean when they talk about laziness. And then there's a separate thing, which is sort of like what people call lazy IO, which means that like side effects only happen at the very last minute. And remember, in Haskell, those are two separate concepts because we don't conflate evaluation order with side effects. Whereas like in another language, those are basically the same idea, right? So laziness for evaluation order is the same thing as laziness for side effect order. But let's go back to like why people would want laziness in the first place. I feel like laziness has some benefits and some disadvantages. And obviously, the biggest disadvantage is that laziness makes it much more difficult to reason about the performance of your program. And it's easier to introduce what we call space leaks in Haskell, where you accumulate much more memory than you originally intended to. But the biggest advantage of laziness is that it's easier to re-architect your program because you don't have to worry about when things get evaluated. It's a very common thing in Haskell to just like leave some dead code that doesn't do anything just because you know it's not going to get evaluated, right? So you can like define some really large, maybe even infinite tree, and you never use it, and that's okay. You don't have to delete it from your code preemptively, right? You can get around to it later. So it lets you be a lot more sloppy about how things connect together because you know that you're not going to do more work than you actually need to. So I find that for refactoring and re-architecting code, it helps a lot. It also means I don't have to think as much about evaluation, but when I do have to think about evaluation, then it sometimes gets in the way. Okay, and I think that gives a pretty good high-level rundown, and I'm sure I could dig in more. But I also want to talk to you a little bit, because we're getting towards the end of time, of your Turtle project. And that's part of using Haskell for shell scripting. And the reason I want to make sure we cover that is you were talking about having something that people can use, but it's also one of those ways of being able to sneak Haskell into your work environment because you can use Haskell, if nothing else, as part of your own personal tool chain when you need to do some evaluation. And maybe, just maybe, you can find that magic moment when someone's like, wait, how did you pull this off? And you can pull out any one of these languages, whether it's Racket, as Matthew Butterick said in his episode, or Haskell, or anything else that you're doing that says, look, I'm just able to take advantage of it, and now I can A, help learn it, 
and find some other experiences to challenge myself with and be be productive with it and have that as a tool that I can share when people say, how are you wanting able to do this and pull that out? So I'd like to cover some of that, what you're using for Haskell for shell scripting and Turtle specifically and anything else you have tips in general for finding that usage of Haskell. So I think obviously the most important thing you can do is if you want to get Haskell adopted at your company is to try to get support from management, right? That's the fast track, if at all possible. The nice thing about shell scripts is that they're an easy, non-committal way to experiment with Haskell, right? You lose nothing as an organization if it turns out to be a failed experiment because shell scripts are so small, they're easy to rewrite. And the worst case scenario is the shell script grows way out of control, in which case it was a good idea to write in Haskell as opposed to Bash. Because most people will agree that Bash does not scale well to very large programs. But actually, the main reason I wrote Turtle was because I found that shell scripting was a very low barrier way to learn the language. Because one thing that at the time I wrote it, a lot of classes and tutorial material in Haskell would spend a lot of time teaching about the pure fragment of the language and then only talk about like how to do useful things with Haskell and use side effects very late into the lessons. And I wanted people to give a very fast, quick feedback way to get something useful out of the language. And I figured a scripting library is a very easy way to teach people a useful application of side effects in Haskell that requires little upfront learning and knowledge. So even if you don't want to introduce it at work, I recommend using my shell scripting library just as a, a way of learning Haskell without having to commit a large amount of time to the language. It's very similar in spirit to Bash, except it provides a lot nicer API. It fixes a lot of the warts that plague Bash. And it'll also, along the way, teach you a lot about some of the mathematical abstractions that I've been talking about throughout this talk. So I think that that's probably the bigger compelling use case for using my shell scripting library, Turtle, which is just a low barrier way to learn the language. But if you also use it to introduce Haskell at work and get people to see what Haskell code actually looks like, then that's a positive thing, too. And the using it at work was more of if you've got the problems and more of that it gives you the opportunity to find the problems and maybe as a plus, it allows you to share it with other coworkers that say, hey, here's what I did. And you can do it as a kind of sharing code reading experience where you kind of say, hey, here's something else I found. Here's what it uses. But it seems like having that shell scripting just as a tool in your tool belt for learning even helps get you past some of the side affecting monad concepts where if I want to read in from the console or read in a file, how do I handle the input output I'm dealing with when I need to read in from files or consoles or write out to the file or console or wherever it is so I can do the actual work? Yeah. So one thing I want to plug about the Turtle library is it's not just a library, but it's a really, really long tutorial on how to use it basically assumes no Haskell background and teaches you how to use the library and teaches you Haskell at the same time. And it teaches you how to use side effects, but there's never the word monad anywhere in the tutorial. So if you want to learn how to use side effects without learning monads in Haskell, that tutorial is the way to go. So I just want to sell that particular aspect of it. You can find the tutorial as part of the library's documentation on Hackage. There is a turtle.tutorial module, which you can use to learn both Haskell and the library. And it seems that that's useful for reducing the barrier to entry getting up and started because while you still might be learning what a monad is, 
you're learning what a monad is without the intimidation of being faced with, here is the word, and now it's something else that you feel you have to learn because you've started to understand through examples how you interact with a monad or a functor or applicative or whatever just because you're doing that as part of your work to get stuff done and being productive. And then you can later come back and say, oh, by the way, all the stuff we did was this thing in category theory. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people approach the language assuming that there's going to be some sort of monad enlightenment they're going to reach. And that once they reach that, then they're done learning the language. But I say I was like, that's further from the truth than it can possibly be. When you finally understand monad, you're going to be like, oh, this is actually not as big of a deal as I thought it was going to be. And at the same time, you're going to realize, oh, hey, I have way more to learn than I originally thought I needed to learn. So and then so you realize there's no actual monad enlightenment in the first place. I say just like just it's just another interface. It's like collections API in Java is just another interface you learn. It just happens to be more reusable than a lot of other programming language interfaces. But whether or not it's the monads or not, I would assume that it helps give you the idea of understanding at least the purity delineation of here's the part that needs to be pure and here's the part that needs side effects and well, I might mix them to start with. I've now got that experience of feeling that pain of Mixing the pure function with the side effectful methods, procedures, however you want to call it, when you're dealing with the operations that you need to do that you would normally be doing quite a bit in shell scripting. Yes. And I find that, like you mentioned, there definitely is sort of a clean division between the pure fragment of Haskell and the side effect of fragment of Haskell. Haskell enforces that division much more strictly than other languages. And to be honest, it makes side effects a little bit harder to write in Haskell compared to other languages. And I consider that to be a good thing, right? You want to maximize the pure fragment of your program as much as possible because that makes your program much easier to test. And you want to minimize the impure fragment of your programming. Otherwise, you're going to end up relying very heavily on integration tests. And well, so to make an analogy, pure code can be tested using quick and cheap unit tests. Side effect code requires more expensive and more difficult to maintain integration tests to test. So you want to minimize the side effect code as much as possible. And I find that like that's actually a compelling reason for learning Haskell 2, or not actually not learning it, but using it, which is that Haskell promotes good practices by discouraging things that you shouldn't really be doing a lot of anyway. So for example, you can do state in Haskell. Uh, it's going to be more difficult than doing state in other languages. And that's a good thing, right? You want to minimize shared mutable state. That just makes your programming better and easier to test. Uh, in Haskell, it's easier to write generic functions than it is to write specific functions. Like the compiler will actually go out of its way to infer the most generic type possible for your function. And you have to actually tell the compiler to use a more specific type because the default is to use the most generic type possible. And again, that encourages writing more generic, more reusable functions, which is a good thing. And Haskell doesn't have null by default, right? So you, you have to explicitly opt into it using Haskell's maybe type. So in Haskell, again, it discourages using null pervasively, which is a good thing, right? Null-free code is easier to deal with than null pervasive code. So it's just all those little things just encourage people to write better code. And so as a team lead, that's good because you don't need to police your team as much to write, you know, follow good practices. The language is sort of naturally guiding them down the right path in the first place. And that's one of the things I've heard other people who might not be doing Haskell, but have spent some time learning it and playing with it and working with it to some extent, is that 
that's one of the biggest takeaways that they found is not necessarily the power of types, which they love, but it's the realizing how much impurity is leaking in, even though they are trying to be pure, because Haskell flops you on the wrist and says, I see what you're doing, but I'm not going to allow you to do it, and I'm going to make it painful. So by the time you start to understand that lesson from Haskell, when you come back to whatever else it is, even if it is a another functional language, which isn't as strict in that sense, you start to realize, oh, I'm sinking in this impure or this state, or I've got a null here. Now I know, because I've been discouraged by Haskell, what I should be doing here instead. Yes. People who learn Haskell very often take some lessons with them. The most common one is to keep their code as pure as much as possible. There are some things that are more difficult to port to other languages. Like Haskell has just lots of abstractions which don't mesh well with idioms of other ecosystems. Uh, In general, you should try to stick to the prevailing idioms of your ecosystem if it's possible. I think most people agree that pure code is good regardless of ecosystem, which is why that's what most people end up taking back with them. Another thing that people take with them when they go to other ecosystems is how to use types more effectively. A lot of people don't realize how many things can be checked and enforced by types. And they're very used to checking those things with tests. And the more you learn Haskell, the more you learn, wow, I can actually encode a lot of invariance, a lot of correctness in my program in the type system. And you can take that back with you to other type languages and encode those things and make what we like to say impossible states unrepresentable. Because once you learn how to make impossible states unrepresentable, it just becomes harder to write wrong programs. And it's easier to maintain them because you know that no matter how much you change or modify your program, you know, those possible states are still not going to happen. So the type system becomes not so much an impediment, but more like an assistant that tells you like when you're doing something dumb. And that's really powerful. And the fact, and it's also compared to tests, faster to execute. It's much more well-behaved. It's not flaky. And it's just a really reliable and trusted tool. And it's uh, something you can do without ever having to run code, essentially. So it's just a very... It's a tool that you should be taking advantage of a lot more. And that's another thing that people are taking with them as they learn Haskell and they go back to other languages. So we're getting towards the end of our time, but I want to make sure that I at least give you the opportunity to bring up any other topics that you think the audience should know about. Uh, Maybe we can dig in and give a quick overview of some of those topics, but at least was there anything else that you thought of in this conversation that you want to highlight or at least make mention of before we start? wrapping up the episode? Yes, one thing. If you're trying to look for what are compelling use cases for Haskell, I recommend you check out a very long post I wrote called State of the Haskell Ecosystem. It's a very detailed account of what programming domains Haskell's appropriate for and what domains it's not appropriate for. And it's a very quick way if you're just trying to check, should I use Haskell for this project? You can find out very quickly, is this going to be a good fit or am I going to run into a lot of problems? And I find that helps a lot of people who are trying to decide whether or not they should use Haskell for any given project. So I would like to plug that. And also, of course, I would like to plug my blog, haskellforall.com. I love to blog about Haskell and on the libraries I write and about all the things we've been talking about, like equational reasoning, mathematical interfaces, category theory. Those are all topics I love to blog about, too. So you mentioned a couple of plugs. Is there anything else you want to plug? Do you have any appearances, either attending or presenting at some conferences? I'm not quite sure what the Haskell world looks like, but maybe some of the cross-community conferences, or is there any other projects 
mentioned Turtle and we mentioned Pipes, but are there any other projects or anything that you want to make sure people know about, maybe want people to look at, participation in, or just recommendations in general that you think the audience would appreciate? So as far as conferences go, the only one I have scheduled in the near future is for, I think, Lambda Conf Retreat in early next year. That's the only one that I'm booked for. As far as uh, libraries, some libraries that I would like to plug are, for example, uh, My Bench Library. It's a command line benchmark tool, which is basically a better alternative to the time Unix command. It's useful for people who don't even use Haskell. It's basically an executable binary. You can just download it and use it, and you'll find it very handy. Another thing I would like to briefly mention is a library that I'm working on, which is called the Doll language. And it's basically a configuration language which is designed to be embedded in several other languages. So it's essentially a fully featured programming language customized towards configuring programs. And it has some nice properties like it's always guaranteed to terminate. You can normalize things to normal form. It's got a type system. You can embed code via relative paths or URLs, things like that. I think that's all that I want to pitch for now. And we've covered a bit, and we might have had some smaller call to actions littered throughout, such as work on Haskell, try it. That's the best way to learn. Evolve, evolve, evolve. But do you have any main call to action that you want to leave the audience with? If you're looking to improve the Haskell ecosystem for other people to adopt it, try to work on improving the IDE and editor experience for new users. That's probably the number one thing that would help increase adoption and make it easier for new people to contribute. It's also a great way to get your feet wet with the language if you're also learning and you just want to make open source contributions, but you don't want to you know, start your own project. There are lots of great Haskell projects to contribute to, like the Lexa project or the um, IDE Haskell plugin for the Atom editor. And I believe there's also a new a team being formed for just basic general IDE Haskell tooling, but I don't remember the name off the top of my head. But perhaps if they uh, tell me what the name is, I can just retweet it after this. And is that a IDE or are these plugins for IDEs? Because I know there's like Haskell for Mac, but is there other IDEs or are these mainly plugins? The only actual standalone IDEs that I'm aware of are, like you mentioned, Haskell for Mac and Lexa. The other ones are IDE plugins. Like the Atom is probably the most widely used IDE plugin for Haskell. I mean, oh, sorry, also Emacs plugins. So like SpaceMax has good Haskell support, I hear. And there are also Vim plugins for Haskell as well. Okay, and that's one of those things that, as you defined refactoring, defining IDE would be, I figured would be useful. So we'll make sure to get some links to some of those projects in the show notes for any others so people can find their editor IDE of their choice and see about contributing or at least find using it if they're trying to pick it up and use it on their own. Also, there are a lot of links to IDE-related things in that State of the Haskell ecosystem guide that I mentioned. It has an IDE system with several links there that you can browse as well. Okay, and I'll make sure to try and get, if not that whole link, which I'll have in, is see about getting some subsection to that link as well. Mm -hmm. So where can people find you and follow you and keep up to date with what's going on? I have a Twitter account, which is GabrielG439, and my blog, HaskellForAll.com, and I'm also... Tecmo, T-E-K-M-O, on Reddit. Those are the primary means that I communicate with other people. And I'll get links to those accounts in the show notes for people to find you, follow along, and keep updated with what's going on in your world. 
I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo, and once again, thank you, Gabriel, for taking your time to join me today. It was a real pleasure talking with you, and interesting to see how people are learning and experiencing Haskell, and the fact that Turtle is out there seems like a good use to find a way for me to have some side projects to play with Haskell, and just, if nothing else, by doing stupid dumb shell scripting and translating some Ruby or Bash or whatever scripts into Haskell and see how they come out. So thank you for sharing that stuff with us and taking your time to join me today. Yeah, thank you very much. It was a lot of pleasure talking with you today. I'm very grateful that you had me on your show. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.